Well, good morning, everybody. I want to take a moment to welcome you, those of you that are joining us online uh, through our live stream, but also uh, those of you guys over at Die Ball, at the Die Ball Correctional Center. Uh, you are not a church project. You are a part of our church family, and we love that you get to join us every single week. Yeah. We love you guys. And your next-door neighbors, we're going to be coming to your next-door neighbors there at the Duncan Unit here pretty soon, launching our, our second prison venue. So uh, we'll be talking about that. Also, those of you that are watching the Die Ball, we're going to be having some water baptisms. And I know that over uh, 70 of you have already said, hey, I want to be water baptized. Man, I can't wait uh, to see what God does in your guys' life. And again, so thankful you're part of our church family. We continue on with the story. We're several weeks in since Super Bowl Sunday going through a chronological gallop through the story of God. There's one big story. There are multiple books of the Bible, 66. Uh, there are 600,000 words in the Old Testament and about 180,000 words in the New Testament. And although the old and the new might look a little different and you might read them differently, it's all one big thread, one big story of God. There's an upper story of what God is teaching us and a lower story of what we're experiencing and how humanity is learning that lesson. We've been going through that process, like I said, for several weeks, and today we're getting into kind of a grimy, seedy, hard-to-understand piece of not only history, but of how God deals with the nation of Israel. And so to kind of launch into this, I want to go to the prophet Isaiah, who was alive during all of this uh, doom and gloom and the destruction of the nation of Israel, the toppling of the northern and southern kingdoms. And Isaiah says it to us like this in Isaiah chapter 5. He says, you're doomed if you call evil good and call good evil. Destruction's certain when you call darkness light and light darkness. You ever, ever, ever had a conversation with someone who is so set in their ways, but you can totally see, man, if they go down that path, that's a dark path. Because you learned that lesson already maybe, right? Or maybe you're still learning that lesson, but you can see it so much better in somebody else's life than your own. I mean, you know, you can point out the speck when you got a sequoia tree hanging out of your own tree, you know, out of your own eye. You're doomed if you call evil good and good evil, light and darkness and light, light and darkness. When right is considered wrong, what's wrong, uh, it, what's wrong is considered right. When you claim what is bitter is sweet and what is sweet you call bitter. And you want to talk about the kind of culture that Israel was living in. It was that kind of culture where God had said it even since the Garden of Eden. Everything's good, enjoy it except this one tree. And what does the enemy do? Comes in and what does our old nature do? Comes in and says, everything else is kind of do, but man, this one tree is good. And we call what God calls bad, we call good. And, 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 and that's just how culture begins to deteriorate. We're living in a culture that up and down, left and right, what was right is now wrong. What's wrong is right. We, we're dealing with those realities of a shaken up culture. You may want to take your notes you receive when you walk through our doors. We, we're a fill-in-the-blank church. Some people call us the blankety-blank church. Uh, and, and it's because we fill in blanks or maybe something else. I don't know. But I like to think it's just because we fill in blanks on Sunday morning. But we're going to fill in some blanks this morning. And let's start with this statement today. Here it is. Every culture is headed for collapse when it reverses the values that made it healthy. Now, before you think of culture as in uh, the United States of America... Although that is a culture. And every culture, whether it was founded on godly principles or not, when we move away from godly principles, we are headed for collapse, don't matter how blessed we think we are. 
Don't matter whether the money says in God we trust or not. Because if there was any nation that was set up by God, it was Israel. And if there was any nation that at one point said, in God we trust, they also begin to say, ah, but yeah, let's trust in some other stuff too. Every culture, but it's not just a political culture. It's not just a governmental culture. My wife and I are celebrating 18 years of marriage today, June 10th. Yeah. Mm. 14 incredible years out of that 18. Some hard ones, some hard ones. And it wasn't even my fault. It was all her. No, I'm kidding. We, we, we got married right here in this worship center in the year 2000. Janet walked down that aisle. I stood there shaking in my boots as she walked down. I was like, oh, girl. Mm. Stood right here as, as uh, the, the pastor announced us, pronounced us husband and wife. Got to kiss my bride right here. You want to redo that? Oh, I'm going to do it, yeah. And, I mean, we had an awesome time. Then we started running out at the end of it. And as we were running out, I, I accidentally stepped on her dress and it ripped all out. It, no, it didn't rip all out. It just ripped a little bit. But it, was, it made a huge tear in the, whole, in the whole sanctuary. You could hear it. And they were like, oh, it's destined. It's destined for failure. <laughs> but we survived, girl. We survived 18 years. Our marriage has a culture. Our family has a culture. Uh, Janet brought into the marriage the culture of her family. I brought into our marriage the culture of my family. And how those begin to intertwine and the language it causes us to speak. Do you know one of the biggest cultural barriers in the world is language barrier in a culture? When we take one marriage and family and we join together husband and wife and the two shall become one, there's language, there's cultural issues. And when we take advice of the things of the, of the, of the marriages that have survived beyond us and have thrived and been healthy and we reverse those things, when God says, hey, um, sex inside the boundaries of marriage is, is a beautiful thing. But if we take that and we reverse it and we do it on whatever feels right to us, it makes sense. Oh, that's antiquated. That's old stuff. That's old school stuff. And we try and tune around. Every culture, every marriage, every family is headed for collapse when we reverse the kind of values that first made it healthy. And we see that happening in the nation of Israel as we read chronologically. Now, to give you sort of a timeline, it's not on this picture. But what's happened over here is the creation of the world, uh, the Garden of Eden, the fall of man, uh, the, uh, the flood uh, that started over uh, with uh, Noah and his family into the Tower of Babel. Uh, and then we get into Father Abraham. Father Abraham uh, had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just, no, move on. <laughs> let's just move on. Abraham is given a promise by God when he's 75 years old. It's not fulfilled until 25 years later. When, when God says, I'm going to make you, old man, 75, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And, and it's, it's funny to his wife at the time, who's Sarai. And, and, and yet God's promise is unfolded through Abraham. He has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Now follow me. Jacob has 12 sons. And a daughter, but these 12 sons create the 12 tribes of Israel because Jacob's name by God was changed to the name Israel. So Jacob and Israel are one man and the tribes of Israel come out of, of Jacob or Israel. Those 12 tribes 
uh, create the nation after a certain amount of time. But what they have to go through first is one of those guys, when you have 12 kids in your house and you're trying to feed 12 kids, discipline 12 kids, clothe 12 kids, and not only is it 12 kids, there's two wives in the house. And not only are there two wives, there's also two maidservants that, that when uh, the two wives got too old, they started having some of those 12 kids. Things get a little complicated. Like, that's a complicated household, right? There's sibling rivalry. Simeon ate my peanut butter sandwich again. Yeah, Reuben. And then Joseph joins the scene as one of the second, uh, second to the youngest. And, and he's, he's all like telling them, I, I'm gonna, I think I'm going to kind of rule over everything someday. And you guys are going to kind of bow down to me. It was a crazy dream. What do you think? They'll like, tell you what you think. Throw him in a well. Kill him. And that's what they do. They try to they, they throw him in a well. They then sell him into slavery. Joseph shows up to Egypt. He goes through prison. He goes through Potiphar's house. He grows up to be the second in charge in Egypt. And through a God-ordained turn of events, those 11 other brothers come into Egypt they, they, uh, they begin to grow in Egypt. They become huge in numbers. They become one big people group. And the Pharaoh, after Joseph, after a few hundred years, the Pharaoh gets scared that they're getting so big. So he causes, he, he orders mass genocide. Every new baby boy being born to the 12 tribes of Israel, they're gonna, we're going to murder them. And Moses is one of those baby boys. And his mom hears about the news. And when she gives birth to Moses, she makes a little wicker basket, paints it in tar, sends it down the river. And sure enough, Moses, this little foster kid, this little orphan, finds his way through the hand of God into the house of the one who was trying to kill him in the first place. Isn't it amazing that, that Moses delivers people and how Jesus, he, he takes this modest form that he sent from heaven to earth. He shows up as a grown man in the house of the king, and he surrenders his own life for us. There's beauty in the deliverance of Jesus, and we see kind of shadows of what Jesus is going to do in the future in this story. But Moses comes, and as he grows, he delivers all those na the nations of Israel out of the oppression of the Egyptians. And they begin to go from Moses into the wilderness and into the promised land. And Joshua is the next leader, takes him to the promised land. There's, it's this like, it's this crazy band of brothers' villages that are all kind of together as one community. But it's not until they finally get a king that they solidify their national authority. Their monarchy is Saul and then David. David and then Solomon, and that's where, we, that's where we stand. King Saul, King David, King Solomon, they all have one rule under the 12 tribes. But then after Solomon dies, Solomon's uh, son, they didn't want to follow Solomon's son. They asked him, now this is kind of interesting, they asked him, would you lower the taxes on, on the, the tribes? And he said no. And because he wouldn't lower the taxes, that was one of many things. But because he wouldn't lower the taxes, they split off. Ten of the 12 tribes split away and they formed the northern kingdom. So you have northern Israel with 10 of the 12 tribes and southern Israel with two of the 12 tribes. I'll not give you all the 10, but I'll give you the two. The two were Judah and Benjamin. Those two tribes, the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah, were in the south, and the other ten were in the north. Now the northern king 
uh, he says, hey, we're not going to go south to, to worship in the temple anymore. We'll make our own temple. And they start to create their own temple and their own worship, and they add all kinds of pagan gods into it. And the whole issue of the entire Old Testament, let me tell you, I said it a few weeks ago, is idolatry. It's putting anything before God. And the first commandment says, thou shall have no other gods before me. And it's the one, like, he really didn't even have to give them ten. He just gave them one. They couldn't even do the one. Like, just one. Don't have any other gods before me. And yet, they just wanted to have backup. They wanted to have God plus. God plus financial security. God plus the rain God. God plus whatever makes me feel good. God plus pleasure. God plus let me live my life based on my own opinions. God plus. And anytime it's God plus, it's not God. It's not really God in your life. When it's God plus you, when it's God plus your emotion that's leading you, it's not really being led by God. And so they had this civil war, but beyond the civil war, not only were they having issues between them, but they had all these other armies in the Middle East still attacking them. There were still Philistines. There were still Assyrians. There were still the Babylonians. They were all dealing with outside conflict and inner conflict. And finally, over, over a course of time, the first kingdom to fall is the northern kingdom. And the army of the Assyrians, the Assyrian army... They go in, they attack the northern kingdom, and they take captive all ten tribes, the men, the women, and the children. That happens there, you can see, in, in 722 B.C. What the Assyrians do is they take those captives and they spread, they spread those Israelites all across a large geographical place. And they put them in tiny little populations, tiny little, little just, just little bitty t communities all across the Middle East. And what happens to those 10 northern, those 10 tribes is they begin to die and they begin to need more men and women. And they begin to um, breed with other cultures. They marry into other cultures. And what happens is you really lose the tribes within all of the pagan culture that takes place. And they're known as the kind of the lost tribes of Israel because they allowed other cultures to come in and dilute down the Israeli culture, the monotheistic, the one God culture of one God, one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The southern kingdom, the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, they, a, a, a little while later, they are also taken over because neither one of them did good with saying, only you, God, just you. Uh, it's going, they also struggle with God plus. And they would have one king come up and would do good in the eyes of God. And then his son would come up and not learn from his dad. And he would do evil in the sight of the Lord. And let me tell you something. You, we are one generation away from being a completely godless culture in America. We're one generation away in our family of that, that part portion of our family becoming completely godless if we don't choose to not just go to church, but truly believe what we believe about God and who he is and what he's done. And so what happens is the Babylonians, so we have the Assyrians that take over northern Israel, and we have the Babylonians who take over southern Israel. I don't want to nerd you to death with all this geography and history, but you tracking with me so far? Okay, so, so let me give you just a little bit modern day. So northern Israel... Where they went and where they dispersed, you would know it uh, as Iran and Turkey and Syria today. The southern kingdom was pulled into, the, into uh, Babylon, and the Babylonian culture was about 60 miles south 
of a capital city called what is now called today Baghdad, Iraq. So you've got this Israeli infighting against all these other cultures, and you wonder why there's still all this tumult and craziness in the Middle East. It didn't start back in 1922. It didn't start with nuclear war conversations. It didn't, it didn't start back in World War I. It started way long ago, way long ago. Why? Because the, whole sto- the story of God is continuing to be written. And, and we're continuing to figure out, are we going to serve one true God, or are we going to kind of do God plus? So what I want to land on today is what happens with the southern kingdom. We're going to read a little bit about that. In fact, you start reading that story in the book of Daniel, the first chapter. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of Judah's king Jehoiakim's reign, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon besieged Jerusalem with his armies. And God gave Nebuchadnezzar the victory. What? God who had developed the nation of Israel, God who had had forgiven them and given them grace time and time again. Finally, he said, look, my grace is sufficient, but you need to learn a lesson beyond my grace. And he said, you're you're going to be disciplined for a while. Listen, don't, don't be surprised if God uses ungodly people to have his will accomplished. It happens. God can use ungodly people to have his will accomplished. And sometimes his will is not always like daisies and buttercups and slow motion runs through fields of flowers. Sometimes his will is the, the crucifixion. Sometimes his will is I have to die to self. To live as Christ, to die is gain. And God gave the nation of Israel, both sides, from the Assyrians to the Babylonians, gave them over and said, okay, we're going to learn a lesson here. When Nebuchadnezzar returned to Babylon, he took with him the best sacred objects from the temple of God in Jerusalem and put them on display in his pagan temple in Babylon. He also ordered that the best young men of Judah, taken as captives, be brought to his palace. And Nebuchadnezzar says, select only the best looking, only the strongest, only the smartest young men, he said. Isn't it interesting that the value that Nebuchadnezzar had is some of the same values we have today? I mean, they need to be the right appearance. They need to have the right athletic ability. They need to have the right academic aptitude. And we put such a high value on those three elements in our culture. Yes? Yeah, the answer is yes. Yes. He says, make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning, gifted with knowledge and good sense, have the poise needed to serve in my royal palace. Teach these young men the language and the literature of the Babylonian culture. They're to only eat Babylonian food, and they're to be trained for three years. Also, they were given new Babylonian names. And so what's going on here? What's happening? The entire nation of Israel, southern kingdom especially, is being completely shaken up completely shaken up, and they're now on a three-year indoctrination program to get these guys, the best and the brightest, to start thinking like Babylonians instead of thinking like one true God Israelites. And so they changed their names, and Daniel's familiar because of the book of Daniel, but his Babylonian name given was Belteshazzar. And then you had Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were given the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we hear of those three in particular in a big story about the fiery furnace that you'll read this week. If you want to remember them a little bit easier, it's just uh, Shadrach and Benny. You can just remember them that way. Shadrach and Benny. Okay. 
So we're going to talk about next week on Father's Day how Daniel, who is when he's 15 years old, the, the Babylonians come in, they blow down the walls, they put in shackles the, the smartest, the brightest, the best-looking future valedictorians. He's 15 years old, him and his buddies, and they're taken into captivity. And they're, they're saying, wow, God, what are you doing here? What's going on? And yet Daniel and his three compadres, they stood true and they, st they stood stable in the midst of crazy, chaotic times. Next week, we'll talk about Daniel and how he, how he stood strong in the midst of crazy persecution and how as men of God, as fathers, and all of us, how we can really stand strong when everybody else is saying, hey, there's other ways about this. But today, what I want to do is want to finish up by talking about what do you do when everything you've known seems to be changed like that, what do you do when you get that phone call? Like yesterday morning from my friend Beverly, whose grandson at 16 years old was killed in a car accident. She serves in our nursery dream team. Beverly does. Faithful here. A lot of family and friends attend the church. And her 16-year-old grandson is, is killed suddenly in a car wreck. What do you do? How do you process? What, what, what do you do when your world is shaken? And how might God speak to us today? Well, let's dive into that a little bit right there on your notes. The first piece we want to mention is this. First of all, look, I shouldn't be surprised by shakeups. I shouldn't be surprised when things go south. When, some, when the train goes off the rails, when there's a wheel in the ditch. You know why? Because life is crazy. And life has got some shake-up moments. The Apostle Peter in his book, 1 Peter chapter 4, he says it like this in the end of the New Testament. He says, dear friends, don't get shocked or surprised. Don't be shocked or surprised when you suffer through painful tests and trials as if something strange is happening to you. He's saying like trials and tests and hurts and problems, that's, that's going to happen. Jesus himself in the Gospel of John, the 16th chapter, Jesus says, in this world you will experience what? Difficulties, yeah. But take heart, I have conquered the world. So even though within the world we have difficulties, there's an outer layer of support and structure that God's providing. Unfortunately, though, we don't always see the perspective of God. We only see the perspective of our shakeup and our situation. He says, I've conquered the world. I've told you this so that in trusting me, you will be what? Unshakable. Whoa. What would my life look like? What would your life look like if we stopped being so surprised when crazy things happen? And we leaned into God and we trusted him even when we didn't know what was coming next. How would I view life different? How would I take risks? What would I do financially? How would I talk to my spouse? What, 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 would, what would be different if I really took this to heart? I could be unshakable and assured deeply at peace. You know, there's some sources of our shakeups. Comes from all kinds of directions. Here's one, you can write it down. Uh, my old nature, just good old me, good old flesh, good old uh, junk in the spiritual trunk. You got, you got stuff you got to deal with. I'll tell you this, you know, I am usually my biggest problem. You are usually your biggest 
problem. But just like Eve in the garden, after she and gives it to Adam who was with her at the time, when Jesus, God comes on the scene, she goes, oh, I don't know. And, and he goes, Adam, what happened? He goes, well, the woman you put here with me, woman you put here with me, she made me eat it. And she says, well, the devil said it this way, the snake said it this way, so I, I ate it. What do we do? We don't think we're our biggest problem. We think they're our biggest problem. In marriages, how many times? Well, if she would just stop, just start, just quit, just make, just do, just not. <laughs> well, <laughs> I am my biggest problem usually. Things get shaken up. Man, I can't believe they fired me against my fourth. That's my fourth job in six months. These bosses are idiots. They don't know what I bring to the table. They don't know I'm a hard worker. They don't see what I see. It's ridiculous. And, and, and somebody's going, bro, bro, you are your problem. It's not your boss. But that's an issue. You know what else is an issue that's a source of shakeups is a fallen world. I don't understand it. And I don't like it. And I want to give everybody in this room permission to struggle with things they don't understand. I just don't want to give you the permission to struggle just on your own strength. It's why we lean not on our own understanding. Struggling by ourselves without leaning into Christ will produce nothing but chaos in your life. Okay? But when I, when I talk to a mom who's lost their son just a week ago, and then a grandma who lost her grandson yesterday, the intersections of pastoral ministry. Sometimes I hear, oh, no, God's in control. But man, this is, I want to tell you it's okay to say, God, come on. What is going on here? Why? It's okay, it's, it's okay to, to deal with that because here's the deal. We live in a broken world, that this is not our home. This place is temporary. This is a speck of dust in your timeline of eternity. But yet there's so much value and so much love and so much hope and so much, so much kindness and so much family. And I can't imagine getting the phone call with one of my children that they were gone. And I would struggle with that. But it's not because everything is God doing something. Sometimes things happen because a world has been spun in existence and it rains on good people and it rains on bad people. It rains on the just and the unjust, the Bible says. It's a source of our shakeups. Stuff happens. We have a real enemy, Satan. And sometimes our shakeup is the enemy is wanting to sift you like wheat. The enemy is wanting to come against you. The enemy is tempting you. Okay? We have so comic booked everything. We live in such a DC and Marvel universe that we put Satan in there with Thor. You know, he's some kind of comic book character in a red spandex outfit with a little thin Clark Gable mustache and a pitchfork running around in spandex. That's the spandex rubbing against each other. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, sometimes I should just shut up. 
Sorry for the devil to sneak up on you. <laughs> but we've so characterized, like, like character, caricatured him that we've forgotten he is a real enemy. He's a real foe, and he's out to steal, kill, and destroy. And sometimes the source of your shakeups is an attack of the enemy. Absolutely. Now, here's the fourth one, and this one's the, the harder one for us to grapple with, and it is God. Sometimes God causes shakeups in our life. It happened with the nation of Israel. He allowed them to go through a very difficult situation. And what we do is we tend to look at the source of our issues, whether it may be God of the universe or our old nature, and we, we focus on the, the source versus how we respond to it. It's not in your notes, but you may want to write it down. The source of our shakeup isn't nearly as important as our response to it. How you respond by the power of the Spirit, how you respond by the renewing of your mind, how you respond by trusting even when things don't make sense, surrendering even when it is our nature to want to grab control all the time. Our response to a shakeup is way more important than where it came from. But I will tell you this, when God is involved in our shakeup, there are some questions we should ask. There is nobody in the universe that cares more about you than God himself. He, he is working on you. He is developing you. And, and so we want to lean into that thought today of what if God is, is shaking something up in my life? What does that look like? Well, not only do I figure out that I can't be surprised when shakeups happen because it's, it's a part of nature. It's part of life. But secondly, I consider the ways God might leverage my shakeup. When, 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 when one of the wheels gets in the ditch, how might God use this? Let me tell you something to you. Satan won't turn a bad thing into a good thing. Um, only God can turn something bad like ashes and turn it into beauty. Only God takes death and brings life. Only God can trade the sorrow for the joy. We sang that earlier, and man, what a crazy exchange. What a crazy exchange that we would be going through horrible circumstances, and the exchange rate on that, when we give it to God in his hand, the exchange is not less worry, it's joy. When we're struggling and, and, and we don't know what to do, his exchange rate is not just a little bit of hope. His, it's like the ex like so much more than we ever could place in his hands, he puts in ours more than abundantly we, we could even ask or imagine. So consider the ways God might leverage my shakeup. Bible says in Jeremiah, in fact, this is being said in the middle of this whole kingdom falling in the northern and southern kingdom. Jeremiah the prophet is speaking for God. The plans I have for you are plans for good and not to harm you. They're plans to give you hope in the future as they're handcuffed and in a line in the slave line, leaving their capital city that's ablaze, heading to Babylon. And Jeremiah is saying, don't forget, I got, I got plans for you. Don't forget, they're good. Boy, when you're in the middle of this situation, don't seem very good, does it? Doesn't seem like he's God is good all the time and all the time God is good. It seems like I got handcuffs. It seems like I'm enslaved. It seems like I got issues here. So let's look at this. Sometimes God shakes things up to inspect me. Inspect me. Do a little inspection of the inventory of our, of our hearts. Jeremiah, that same prophet, 
writes this, the Lord searches our hearts and examines our deepest motives so he can give to each person his right reward according to how he has lived. Now, let me ask you a question. Does God know everything, yes or no? Yes, he does. The Bible teaches us, the word of God reveals about God himself is that he is an omniscient God, all-knowing. So, does the Lord have to examine us in order to find out something he doesn't know? Is that for his benefit, yes or no? No, no, no. It's for our benefit. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, they ate the fruit and they saw their nakedness and their vulnerability and their innocence was taken and they were not relying on the presence of master God in the garden, but now in their own understanding, their own knowledge, what'd they do? They, they, they went Martha Stewart and they sewed some underwear together with fig leaves. Eve did her hair just perfect. That's how it was in the movies, right? And God starts walking in the garden, and God says, Adam, where are you? Did God know where Adam was? God says, why are you naked? Did God know why they were naked? Right? Of course he did. Why? He wasn't asking them a question for his own benefit. He was asking them a question for their benefit. How many of us do that as our kids? Did you? Did you? Did you write on the wall your name? No. It was Jeremy. My brother in our closet wrote his name, Jared. Like, dude, you are not going to be a criminal long term. He wrote his name, Jared, but the J was backwards. And I was like five years older in school, so I knew how to do my J's at this time. And, and dad said, Jared, did you write your name in crown on the wall in the closet? And Jared's like, it was Jeremy. And I said, Jared, why would I write your name in the closet and do a backwards J? You were just pinning it on me. That's what you were doing. You know? <laughs> like, my dad didn't ask the question because he didn't know. He asked the question because he was allowing there to be an examination of our deepest motives. Does that make sense? God asks us questions not because he needs to know the answer, because you need to contemplate some things. You need to reflect on some realities. Deuteronomy 8 says, God led you all the way in the desert 40 years to humble you, test you, in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you'd keep his commands. And they did until they didn't. And God has got a process that he's inspecting us with. You know, <clears throat> when we want to get from A to B, we want to get from point A to B, when we buy a car for our kids, that it's safe, but it'll just get you to A to B. The best, quickest way, the fastest way to get from A to B is what? Boop. Yeah, exactly. It's just a, it's a straight line. It's the fast way. Siri, give me directions to blah, 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 blah. And she gives you on Google Maps these, these areas on what you can, you can go from here to Dallas and it can give you two or three different options. And one is 22 minutes slower and one is seven minutes slower. And this seems to be the fastest route. And I like to choose, I don't know about you, I like to choose the fastest route to get there. We all like to do that. Whenever there's a conflict in your marriage or a conflict with a friend, we think we know the solution real quick. Well, it's because they don't love me. Oh, it's because they're a jerk. Oh, it's because they don't think about, they don't respect my authority. We get from A to B really fast. 
We assume stuff so fast. But could it be that God has a different direction for your life? We see it all in the nation of Israel, right? Instead of it being real fast, usually this is how God navigates our life. When you ask God, God, put the map on my life from A to B, to who you want, from where I am, to my God-given potential, his map says, it's calculating, and here's what his look like. That's what his map looks like. God doesn't always give us the fastest because the fastest don't mean the best. Fast isn't always the best. Sometimes he wants to crock pot you. You are not going to become all God has for you in the microwave. He develops you. It wasn't until later on that Jesus steps into his ministry. He needed some years, a few decades to begin to not only grow in favor with men, but with God. And Jesus was growing, not in his divinity because he was divine the, the moment he was conceived into the womb of Mary, but he was growing in wisdom and in stature and he was, he was developing. And God was, 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 was building him in relationships in the community and, and there was this process to go. He didn't birth and go to the cross at three years old. He, he had a process. And so here's what happens when we're on this process. It gives you a better perspective. It gets you better inspection on. So when you begin to go around, and right here you had a really hard, a really hard relational challenge with a friend. As you continue to go around, and you hit that same kind of challenge here, you're able to look back. Oh, I remember how God brought me through this. We want it fast, but God says, do you want fast or, or, or do you want to become all God I am wanting you to become? And see, shakeups happen along this road. They just happen. And until we get, it's going to take a while to get there, everybody. So he's inspecting us, and we're allowing God to inspect. God, search my heart, search my ways, speak to me on those issues, and he will. So the question we ask, write it down. What might this problem reveal about me? When I got a shakeup in life, when something goes south, what might this problem reveal about me? Am I quick to, to, to uh, get mad and angry and resentful to God when something bad happens? Am I quick to shut off from other people and not talk about it? Am I quick to go internal? Am I quick to get mad and just yell at the top of my thumbs on Facebook about it to everybody that's all my great friends on Facebook that know me only because I'm, you know, doing keto? <laughs> what might this problem reveal about me? Ask that question. See what God might want to say. Number two, sometimes God shakes things up to what me? Correct me. Yeah, like correct you, give you course correction. Hebrews 12, God corrects all of his children, and if he doesn't correct you, then you don't really belong to him. God corrects us for our own good because he wants us to be holy as he is. The author goes on to say it's never fun to be corrected. I don't know a single child. I've not raised one yet this, that, that when I say, you're going to get disciplined for that, they say, <laughs> Thank you. What might you ground me from today, Father? <laughs> it's never fun to be corrected. Nobody's like, oh, yay, Daddy said he's going to spank me. 
In fact, at the time, it's always painful. But if we learn to obey by being corrected, which that's why we correct our children, man, if your parents didn't correct you, I promise you, you created your own and found very easily chaos in your life. Students, don't underestimate the value of someone older than you that you can trust that's saying, oh, don't go down that path. Don't, don't, don't make that decision. I made that. De- don't make, oh, they're just antiquated. They're old. They don't got a, they don't got a clue what's going on. Grandpa, he's nice. He's loving, but he don't got a clue about the real world. He don't even have a Snapchat. Grandpa's like, I don't need a Snapchat to know that you are, like, driving your, your car into a brick wall the way you're living. It's never fun to be corrected. But as parents, we have to correct our children, and God has to correct us. So ask, what might this problem teach me? And it can be a, something as devastating as the loss of a loved one. Stepping back and saying, okay, This hurts. God, what do you want to show me? What do you want to teach me in this, in this time? How, how, do you want to, how do you want to use me in this moment? This hurts. Number three, sometimes God shakes things up to direct me. Because we've been going one way and he's got to, he's got to like pop the tire. He's got to put the roadblock out. He's got to cause a diversion in traffic for you to... To, to, to stop for a second and detour. Proverbs says in verse chapter 16, a person may plan his own journey. You may put, put it into Google Maps, but the Lord directs his steps. And there are steps at a time. God, where are you directing me in this process? Another great Proverbs is in chapter 20, verse 30. Sometimes, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes it takes a painful experience to make us change our ways. Sometimes trouble in your life forces you to think differently about a situation in your life. Sometimes the pain says, ooh, I'm not going down that path again. King David dealt with the pain. King David dealt with it. Listen, he could have gotten away with the whole affair with Bathsheba. He could have gotten away with it. There was no indication that anything was going to be revealed. He has Bathsheba. He kills her husband, Uriah. They get pregnant. They're in the palace together now, and things are just kind of going as planned. Nothing, nothing was happening until God himself directs. God himself corrects. God himself begins to inspect, and he gives the words to the prophet Nathan that there's something going on here. And Nathan shows up into the palace and says, David, God told me something about you. And David had a choice whether to lean into that correction or to put a spear through the throat of Nathan. And he humbled himself. And it's where we get the whole scripture, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew the right spirit within me. David pins that later because of what happened with Bathsheba. He also writes this in Psalm 119. I've thought about my life and I've directed my feet back to your written instructions. When pain comes your way, don't waste that pain. Don't waste it with bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness. Let it lead you back to his word. So you ask the question, is there anything I'm pretending isn't a problem in my life? Is there anything you're pretending right now isn't a problem? That God wants to reveal something to you? No, it's fine. I got it under control. I can handle that. That's not a big deal. It's a public thing. It's a private thing, a secret sin. 
I only dabble with pornography every once in a while. It's just my little escape. We're not near as kind of passionate with each other as we used to be. The marriage has kind of gotten a little dull. And so that's just kind of my little escape. I'm not hurting anybody. Is there any problem that you think getting a problem is a problem? That's a problem. That's a problem. And until you deal with the problems, until you, let's, let's talk about a real culturally hot one. Um, drinking, alcohol. Uh, for a long time, many churches, their stance was, if, if Budweiser touches your lips, you will split hell wide open. And, and I, I want to say two things, two things about that. Um, the first thing is this, I don't drink for, for two reasons. I don't drink because I've made a commitment not to drink as a minister of the gospel of the Assemblies of God. It's one of the covenant agreements that we abstain from alcohol, okay? If I wanted to grab something in Hawaii, boy, nobody's looking, I'd grab me a little whatever thing. Pain chiller is what they call it at Tommy Bahamas. <laughs> Get myself a pain chiller. But I choose to abstain from, from alcohol, okay? Um, I have never counseled a single person, student, couple, grandpa, grandma, aunt, uncle, young, old, uh, southern, northern, foreign, or otherwise that has said to me in a counseling appointment, man, my life was like off the rails. I didn't know what I was doing, didn't know where I was going. Um, could not find solutions to my issues. I had this hole in my heart that I just couldn't figure out how to fill. But then my wife and I started to drink. And when we did, everything turned out I've just never had that conversation. Now, am I being facetious? Yes, but can I just say something to you? There are little bitty things that aren't big issues that before you know it are flaming issues. I mean, you had to have surgery, I get it, but it's been two years and you're still on the pain medication. You need to talk with someone. You need to talk to somebody about that. I can stop anytime I want. What, two years you can't? Drinking is just a fun thing. It's not even a big deal. I don't drink. Have I sat down at, at, at supper lately, recently, and had friends that drink a, a glass of wine or a beer? Sure. I'm not sitting there saying, Dear Heavenly Father, before we pray, I just pray that the spirit of vomit would come up. No. <laughs> no that, that, it's not me. Right? Okay, I'm not, I'm not going to pick and choose. Right? Alcohol's not been a big issue with me. Right? I've, I've had it. I have to work every day at keeping my eyes where they need to be. Every day. I've never, I've never saw a sip, like a, a, something in the cold case and saying, man, I'll take a Coors right now. Never had that. But an attractive woman can catch my eye. So I have to deal with what the enemy or my old nature or the fallen world would want to deal with me. And lean into that. Is there any problem that you would pretend isn't a problem in your life? And if you are pretending it's a problem, you're never going to find out where that problem is leading you. So if you can identify a problem, the next one would be this. Where is this problem leading me? Where is a problem with lust going to lead you? To a better marriage? No. Where is a problem with alcohol going to lead you? To, to a more productive life? No. 
So get it out in the open. Let's talk about it. You know, that's why we are so passionate about groups. Even though we're in, we're in a little bit of a break, there needs to be someone in your corner that you can talk about stuff with. The Bible says go to God for forgiveness. We go to one another. Share your, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. God has chosen to forgive our sins and make us right with him by his divine nature. But then he gives us one another that as we confess and we talk and we deal and say, hey, can you pray with me about a situation? And really we help them, we find healing in that relational connection. It's the way God works. It's beautiful. You still with me? We're going to finish up right here. Number four, sometimes God shakes things up to perfect me. To perfect me. You aren't where you were, but you're not where you're going. He sees beyond who you are to who you can become. The Bible says in 1 Peter 5, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of grace will himself perfect you, give you firmness and strength and a sure foundation. And when things are shaken up, the biggest thing to go is any kind of feeling of a firm foundation. And if you don't have a foundation to stand on, how are you going to feel like you can have strength or you can have firmness? You might be able to be the strongest guy in the world, but how are you going to flex those muscles if your foundation is, is gone? Romans, Paul says, we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials. What? Yeah, 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 because we know that they are, they're good for us. They're good for us. Why? Because they help us learn to be patient. And patience develops strength of character in us and helps us trust God more each time we use it. What is it? The more we go around and we have shakeups, the more we're strengthened, the more he shows us patience, the more we say, okay, I learned how to lean into God. Okay, I'm learning this. I, I, I know this is pain, but I'm not going to waste my pain. It's not in your notes, but you may want to write it down. Pain is the high cost of growth. You want to grow, it's going to require some pain in your life. It's going to require some challenge in your life. So you, you ask the question here, how will I grow from this problem? How will I grow from this problem? How do I grow from this this foundation that has seemed to crack all around me and I don't know what to do next. And maybe it's something I did to myself or something that happened to me or the enemy's been attacking or even God is, is showing me something here. How will I grow from this problem? I encourage you to take these notes. We don't do these just to have something extra to do through the week. I give you the notes that I'm preaching because you, guys, you, know, what, you know what a sermon is like? It is like a cup of warm water in the ocean. If all you do is hear something now and never contemplate or reflect on it beyond now. I, there's power in this sermon way beyond Sunday at 11. Not because of me, but because of what Jesus wants to say through those words Monday through Saturday this week. I encourage you to ask these questions to Jesus in your quiet time. I don't really have a quiet time. Take one minute, read through these notes. That's part of a quiet time right there. Take a lunch break and start thinking through these things because you're dealing with a shakeup. The last thing is this, I'll trust God even when I don't understand. Now that's the biggest one because we are addicted to understanding. We are addicted to control. It is innate in our being. We are born with an involuntary reaction to ask a very big question as kiddos when we're even on a little bit of a trip to go to, to Dallas. What's the biggest question we ask? When will we get there? Or, 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 or we, we ask, why won't we? Or parents say something, they say, you say, why? You're grounded. Why? We love to know answers 
to questions. In fact, we spend a, life, a, a lifetime making sense of things. When, when the wife says it one way and we don't understand, we make up our own understanding of what she means. Come on now. When we don't get it, we assume that we know what it's supposed to look like. And God has said, you're going to live life and you're going to desire control all the time. You want to control things, control things, control things. And you've got to surrender the stuff you can't control. And shakeups are uncontrollable, everybody. They're uncontrollable. The Sims family is going through an uncontrollable shakeup right now. They don't understand, but they're doing their best to put their faith in God. Beverly and her friends and the mom of this boy, Slayton, who died last night, yesterday. I don't understand. We have to lean in to Jesus when we don't understand. The book of Proverbs says, since the Lord is directing our steps, why try to understand everything that happens along the way because the truth is you just won't like my daughter when she was a younger took her to Dr. Glass's office she's got to get a shot and she's just before she even talked she's like smiling and I just think she's the cutest thing in all the world because she is and I'm showing her off to everybody and we get into the little room and the nurse pop 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 pops out these little syringes and I'm getting a little weak in the, in the knees, you know. Oh, Lord. And Sage is just happy-go-lucky. <laughs> when the nurse wipes her arm and begins to take the shots, she goes from this bubbly little baby girl. And her face turns to her dad. And she can't speak it in English, but what she's saying in baby talk, how could you let this woman do this to me? You know what she's asking? Why? Why? I thought I, tra- I trusted you. I let you feed me green stuff out of a little baby bottle. She's asking why? And I, I can't explain to baby Sage, well, here's why we're doing this, so it's an immunization and blah, 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 blah. No, you know what she needs most from me at that moment? She don't even understand. She's not even looking for an explanation. But the best thing I can give her is scoop her up in my arms, lean her head into my neck, and just, I know, baby. Oh, I know. I know. I know it hurts. I know it's going to be okay. Daddy's here. Daddy's here. And there are so many elements in life that when something that we don't understand happens, we look to God, we look to each other, we look to life, and we say, how could you? And God is there. He's ready. Lean into his open arms. But instead, we, we say, I'm going to lean on my own understanding. And he's saying, I designed you with an inability to know everything. So that when you are ready to surrender even your wisdom and knowledge and understanding, I'll be here with arms wide open. And it's in that moment of shaking up, in the moment of hurt, in the moment of piercing, 
we lean into Jesus. I know. If you could see what I see, it'd make more sense. And I see the beginning to the end. I'm Alpha and Omega. I know you don't understand it, baby girl. I know you don't understand it, buddy boy. But Daddy's here. Daddy's here. Trust me. Trust me. Would you pray with me? As one of our team joins us at our dive ball location and all around this room, would you close your eyes and bow your heads? Maybe you're going through a shakeup today. You're going through a shakeup. And you need to sense that God has his hands open to you. And you're making a determination today. I'm going to lean into Jesus and not my own understanding this morning. If that's you and you're going through a shakeup, regardless of the source of it, if you'd like me to pray with you, believe God with you. You just put a hand up in the air. I want to pray. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's good to be vulnerable. It's good to open up. It's good to say, yeah, God, I got an issue here. Father, in the name of the Son of the living God, Jesus, the way we reach our hand up and say, I got an issue, Pastor. I've got a shake up. Lord, we reach our hands up to you and surrender. Father God, Abba, Father, would you help us, Lord? Would you help us learn what we need to learn? Would you give us the gentleness we need in the time of sorrow? Would you give us peace that passes what makes sense right now? God, how people go through shakeups that don't rely on you, I don't know how they survive. I don't know how they do it. But, Lord, in this moment, we declare as men and women of God, whether we are right where we want to be or we're not quite there yet, God, we declare today we're going to lean into you. We're going to trust you, not our own understanding, as you perfect us, as you strengthen us, as you love us and guide us and comfort us. With eyes closed and heads still bowed, if you're here today, and you've drifted from God or you've never invited him to be the Lord of your life. I can't imagine how you've gone through your shakeups up to this point. Accepting him as the center of your life, the Lord of your life, the Savior of your life, doesn't guarantee a life without shakeups. But it does guarantee a life that you will never walk through the valley of shadow of death alone. If you're ready to surrender your heart to Jesus today, first time or first time in a long time, just with no hesitation, put that hand up in the air. I'm ready to surrender to Jesus today. I'm ready to surrender to Jesus today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. In your own words, you just say, Jesus, I surrender my life to you today. Be the Lord of my life. thank you, Lord, that you don't make us get everything right before we come to you. We come to you, and then with your strength, you begin to make things right in our life. Jesus, we begin today by following you with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Thank you for not being mad at us, Jesus, but for loving us so much you gave us this moment to make things right with you.
in Jesus' name.